Welcome to Crypto Sapiens, a show that hosts lively discussions with innovative Web3 builders to help you learn about decentralized money systems, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, and DeFi. The podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Crypto Sapiens is presented in partnership with Bankless DAO, a movement for pioneers seeking freedom from the limitations of the traditional financial system. Bankless DAO will help the world go bankless by creating user-friendly on-ramps for people to discover decentralized financial technologies through education, media, and culture. Hello again, everyone, and we are back with the first episode of 2022. Today, we are talking to Yenwen Feng and Nick Tong with Perpetual Protocol about perpetual swaps, concentrated liquidity for derivatives, and scaling Ethereum on Layer 2 solutions. We cover Perpetual Protocol V2, aka Curry, and their choice to migrate from XDAI to Optimism. Let's get started. So let's uh, welcome our guests here today, Yenwen and uh, Nick. Uh, why don't we get started with a brief introduction to yourselves? And if you wouldn't mind, kind of give us a bit of a backstory as much as you want to share uh, or feel comfortable sharing in terms of, you know, how, you know, wh- what got you started in this space, you know, how you fell down that rabbit hole and how you ended up, you know, working on this project. So Yenwen, why don't we start with you? Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, I'm Yenwen. I'm one of the co-founder of Perpetual Protocol. Um, I, I mean, like, you know, uh, the co-founder and I, uh, we work uh, on like different projects since like 2015, and uh, we actually, uh, we kind of like fell down the crypto rabbit hole in 2017, the end of 2017, because of uh, Crypto Kitty. I mean, um, uh, I used to do like game development, so I. You know, like one, you know, the first time I see that you can actually own an asset in, you know, like online, I think that's really exciting. But uh, at that time, because I think the platform is not ready yet, so we have a hard time. Like, uh, so we actually want to build a game at first, but uh, we have a hard time because uh, there are no tools and then people are just kind of like getting, like, uh, getting to know crypto more. In like 2017, so we ends up like uh, abandoned that idea, but uh, we are more attracted to the whole like uh, EFI. I mean, like uh, how we can build a financial system on chain and then have it be more like transparent, more trustless, like more permissionless. We really like this idea, so we decide that we should like spend our time on this. Uh, and actually, at that time, there is no DeFi yet. I mean, like nobody called the whole like decentralized finance DeFi. I mean, I think only like Maker and the Compound at that time they are still working on this kind of concept. So at the time, we want to work on. I mean, in 2018, we have this new idea that we want to construct uh, an option protocol on chain, but it actually failed. I mean, like, uh, we, we, it's hard to, like, get attention. And then we, it's also like, uh, there are like, some system design issues. So it's our first time. So I think it's, um, it's, it's really hard to decide on chain protocol. So, uh, but we have been like talking to a lot of people. So we end up joining the Binance. They have this new accelerator. So we joined that accelerator. We kind of are working on another idea that uh, actually a quicker accounting software. 
and then actually the market crash. So uh, we've been like uh, in the ecosystem for a while, like laid down and uh, working with accountant to deal with some accounting stuff. And then quick forward to like 2000. So we have been doing that for a year and then uh, quick forward to like 2019, the end of 2019, we actually see the growth of like Uniswap that's really impressive. We feel that the AM is the thing that we haven't figured out, at, you know, in 2018, but uh, it actually works. And then we also look at like the uh, synthetics. We learned a lot of on synthetics. Their token model, their skating model is really interesting. So we feel that if we combine these two, we can probably, I mean, like uh, bring back our like option idea. So we actually pivot, we drop that uh, accounting software idea and then uh, want to build, uh, uh, I mean, give real estate protocol. At first, we work on like options, feel it's so be hard and uh, it's much harder than like other derivatives. So we end up, um, I mean, like trying to do a perpetual protocol online, uh, no, on, on chain. So, uh, so we start like, uh, trying to design that AM and, uh, uh, spend like several months on this. And, uh, in like the beginning of like 2020, we have this new idea that, that we call this virtual AM, which is like, um, it's a uh, kind of like a methodology of how we can place virtual asset into an AM. And then we actually can, um, can have an AM that uh, trigger trade against each other without liquidity provider. So that's actually the thing that we really are psychic about. And, uh, we go ahead and then build that, uh, I mean, build a perpetual protocol. At the time we go is strike protocol. So that's actually how I got into like crypto and then the whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Nick, uh, how about yourself? How did you get started in this space and how did that lead you to perpetual protocol? Uh, I've, I've been in and out of the space, uh, a couple of times, I guess the, the, the last time stuck. Um, so way back in 2013, uh, bought Bitcoin. Uh, got goxed, uh, so kind of left the space for a bit. Um, went into kind of startups, founding my own, uh, and then in about 2016, uh, came back again and, and started running like a, an arbitrage fund. Um, I, I left again uh, post the post the massive crash when when things got quite quiet, um, and joined a another fintech startup as as kind of head of product, and then more recently just around kind of uni v two uh, around the time when they launched or just before, uh, really got into the the balance ecosystem uh, as kind of the first project in DeFi. Uh, from there, just started helping out and reaching out to, to a whole bunch of projects. Uh, joined the Perp community. Uh, and eventually just asked and, and, uh, landed a role at Perp, which is now where I'm at and, uh, currently running strategy and partnerships. Great. Uh, so there's a few things you talked about here that I do want to touch on, but I think it's only fair to do a, I guess, an introduction to the project or the protocol itself. So what is perpetual protocol and really kind of what sets it apart from some of the other DeFi protocols that we may be familiar with? 
Yeah, sure. So, uh, let me do a quick, like, intro. So, perpetual protocol. So, we are building this, like, decentralized perpetual swap, uh, contract on chain and within AM. So, we have, like, this special new design that uh, we launched last year called virtual AM that I just mentioned that, uh, we, I mean, we, we figured out, like, how we can place a virtual asset. I mean, on, in a XYK, like, AM. And, uh, yeah, actually, we don't need, like, a liquid provider, I mean, uh, in that, in that A&M. So that's, I think that's, uh, how we, like, um, differentiate ourselves from others. And, uh, that's a V1 of, like, our, like, uh, um, like, a perpetual protocol. And then we just launched V2, like, uh, two or three days ago. So V2, we actually take a step, like, forward, and then we use a Uniswap V3. As our kind of like um, a base layer, so in V3 you can actually so it's still a perpetual. I mean, contract protocol. So it means that, that you can leverage up to up to ten x, and then you can also short. I mean, the asset you want. We don't really need to. I mean, own the real asset. It's all perpetual contract. But uh, with Union V3, we provide uh, concentrated liquidity, so you can. I mean, like the, I think the capital efficiency is much, much higher than our V1. So yeah, I think that's uh, just a quick intro of like how, what we did. I think we just have like this, like, uh, the team is very good at, uh, at, at AM design. So yeah, that's about it. Yeah, thank you. Um, so for me, that leads to, I guess, maybe the next question. And so I think for many of us who are familiar with DeFi, Perpetuals isn't something that is, uh, you know, kind of the traditional flavor of it. So could you give us just a brief description of what are perpetuals and really how that makes DeFi or how it improves DeFi or how it improves or makes that experience different? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, I guess, like, if we start very briefly, like, I mean, Uniswap, um, is, is a spot kind of exchange and, and you have kind of the underlying token, you swap one for the other. So you, you put in uh, USDC, you get ETH back, for example. Um, the next kind of iteration of that, I guess, from, from a product perspective was then kind of, okay, how do I get leverage on that? And, and so you started to see kind of margin protocols, which is, okay, I will borrow more uh, USDC to, to kind of uh, uh, either buy or sell ETH, for example, and I'll just borrow the assets. Um, the the problem well, was not necessarily a problem, um, but one of the issues with that was that uh, you can imagine the borrowing cost is quite expensive, and so uh, it's not as capital efficient as you as, as you would like. Um, Perpetuals basically is then one step further where it's kind of a synthetic uh, asset where you don't hold the underlying asset, so you don't hold the ETH. Uh, when you buy it, you don't hold Bitcoin if you're buying it, uh, but it just reflects the price um, of that asset and, and how it kind of moves. Uh, and the way that we've done it, I guess, is uh, popularized, I guess, by BitMEX, um, is the perpetual kind of future product. Um, futures in itself, I guess, normally in, in the TradFi sense, um, it expires after a certain amount of time. Uh, and because of uh, the expiry, um, the, the, the price of kind of the market, uh, is forced down to the, the index price. The index price being kind of what the actual spot market is. So, 
um, if if it's if ETH is trading at like four thousand six hundred on kind of this futures market, and the on Uniswap like four thousand five hundred, for example, um, over time as it gets towards the end of expiry, um, that four thousand six hundred will converge to four thousand five hundred because people can arbitrage it. Um, but in in I guess in a perpetual sense, we've then kind of removed the expiry component. So so. Uh, and we've replaced it with, I guess, a funding rate. So the funding rate tries to do the exact same thing, um, but because it's a perpetual, you don't need to worry about expiry. So a lot of the time you have to worry about kind of how do I roll over a contract or how do I like continually think about managing my position? But in this case, you can, you can literally just go 5x long, for example, um, and, and not worry about it too much. Um, and how the funding rate works is quite simple. So if you're, uh, your, your current market price, uh, in, in our case, again, ETH was 4,600. And if the index price, again, spot price, let's say is 4,500, um, then what happens is every hour, uh, the people who are long will pay the people who are short a funding rate. Um, and the idea of that really is that uh, the, the, the higher the difference that is, the more expensive it becomes. And so people are more likely to kind of start selling or you get more short sellers basically. Um, and those line, those prices kind of line up together. So I'd say those are probably the high level mechanics of kind of, uh, perps. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, over time, I guess, how has the perpetual protocol grown, evolved? You know, how, what, what are some of the results, uh, from the product so far? Sure. Uh, that's a good question. So, um, so, like I said, we launched like V1 at the end of last year. So, actually, December. It's almost a year, uh, stuff on there. And, uh, uh, we have around like 33 or 34 billion trading volume totally. I mean, uh, we don't incentivize anything. I mean, like, it's just like, uh, people trade here. So I think that's really great. One thing I want to mention is that the Perp V1 actually built on top of a sky. So we are actually one of the, I mean, like first like projects, like DeFi projects moving on to a sidechain solution. So it actually benefit us because the gas price is low. So, you know, the, the cost of transaction is pretty low. And then the traders can actually place a lot of trades. I mean, build their own strategy more freely on this guy. So I think that's one of the reasons we have this like high transaction volume. Oh, that's interesting. So actually, that that's one of the questions that I usually like to ask of projects uh, that are on the show. And really, that is, you know, what are some of the benefits that people can reap from using this protocol uh, or this project, right? Uh, and it sounds like one of these things is the uh, ability to use it a little bit more, I guess, freely just because of the cost benefits that are associated to it. So was that one of the one of the main reasons why uh, Perpetual Protocol was launched on NextDAI originally? Um, yes. So cost is definitely a big uh, factor for the traders. So, um, so yeah, on NextDAI, the gas fee is, is, is pretty, pretty low. It's like several, uh, maybe like a transaction is several cents. And uh, also at the same time, I mean, all transaction fee is like uh, 10 base point. So it's not that high, I mean, compared to Uniswap. So, uh, so, it, I mean, like, um, it, it, it just like lower the cost of your trades. So if you, I mean, like, if, if you have like, um, I mean, large trade or many trades, you, I mean, like, a perpetual, I mean, contract or perpetual swap is much like a lower cost to you. And also at the same time, 
you know, you can leverage up. I mean, like uh, without borrowing, you don't need to pay interest compared to like margin trading. So that's also benefit. And yeah, so I think that's about it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier that when you were developing Perpetual Protocol, uh, there weren't very many DeFi uh, products around, right? I think you mentioned uh, Compound, I think. Uh, I, I think you might have mentioned also Maker and uh, Synthetics. So were you one of the first to move to XDAI? Because I think all of those projects were built on top of Ethereum, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes, we are kind of like one of the few like DeFi projects move on XDAI. I think we still like one of the few like DeFi projects that on XDAI right now. I mean, uh, because um, I think uh, most of the projects, like, uh, I mean, last year, when we launched the project, I mean, uh, most of people are on ETH, like you said. Uh, now lots of people looking for like, uh, layer two or station solutions. When we, when we launched, launch, launch the protocol, actually, that's kind of like October last year. And the gas price is actually quite high. Not as, not as high as today, but at that time, I mean, from, I mean, like you place a trade, you, you probably cost you like hundred dollar. We just don't think that works for perpetual protocol or actually for any trading. So, yeah, so we are just like one of the pioneers to just move to like layer two and then see how it goes. Right. So what do you, what would you say are, were some of like the challenges in doing something like that, right? Kind of going against like what other people were doing in terms of like where they were launching their protocol and what were some of the clear advantages? Obviously, you know, the, uh, maybe the speed and the, uh, the cost would be too. Uh, what would you say those, those two things would look like in terms of like challenges and, um, opportunities, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. The challenge, of course, is that there, there is like kind of like no one like before us to, I mean, like deploy on sky, I mean, like, uh, for DeFi project. So we have a lot of internal debate as we go to DeFi, I mean, like sky. Or actually, should we go to Matic at that time? So at that time, Matic actually just finished their proof of uh, skate client and then they kind of like relaunched their whole protocol. At that time, still called Matic. And, uh, we have like, um, you know, like some of, some engineer like, support that we should go to this guy. And uh, I mean, it's just like a lot of debate because there is no like clear route to this. So we just you know, um, I mean, just. It sounds like you were experimenting, right? I mean, I mean, mo- most of the space is just really built on experimentation, anyways. Yeah, yeah, but they it it did take a lot of I mean, like research and uh, to to kind of like make 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 that move. Yeah. So I mean, I, I would say that the challenge is just like the team has to kind of like convince that themselves to do this. I think that's actually the thing that we spend most time. Yeah, maybe the protocol wouldn't have scaled so quickly, or maybe it would have been, a, you know, some of those other challenges would have been a lot more clear in terms of people wanting to create those strategies, like you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, on Ethereum versus maybe they weren't so free to do it the way they were able to do it on XDAI. Yeah, true. Tell me a little bit about the PERP token. How does that fit into uh, the protocol itself? Currently, the the main usage for kind of the PERP token is around staking. Um, staking currently uh, earns some inflationary rewards. Um, the idea with with kind of the PERP token really is 
it currently acts as a backstop um, to the protocol. So similar to what I guess Aave has done um, in, in that, like if the insurance fund gets drained, then kind of the perp token holders are the ones that are kind of uh, backstopping it. I, I would say currently we are still working on like future kind of tokenomics. So nothing is like super, super uh, finalized, but the way that it's kind of shaping out currently is, um, the stakers have kind of two two roles. So one is they can stake in kind of the public markets, which is kind of all of the markets that we currently have. Uh, they earn a percentage of the fees. And then if in the case where um, the insurance fund gets hit, goes to zero, uh, then up to 30% of uh, their staked put gets slashed to repay the debt. Um, then from that, they can take their staked put and they can then stake that into private markets. Uh, so very quickly on private markets, uh, the idea of private markets is that um, if you look at all of the perpetual kind of protocols that kind of exist, um, both in, I guess, DeFi and CeFi, uh, everything is permissioned, right? Like you you have to go through a process to kind of figure it out. And there's a really good reason for that because if you launch, I don't know, if you launch a dog token, goes to zero, it's going to have impact on the insurance fund um, and that will be negatively impacted. So with private markets, what we see going forward is almost like private market DAOs where um, all of these markets that they want to run are kind of uh, very isolated. So you will have this, uh, sorry, isolated in the sense of uh, the insurance fund is isolated. So a private market DAO may run kind of three, four, five, however many markets they want. Um, and the insurance fund is is only shared between these markets. So you could launch your set of dog tokens if you really wanted to, um, but you're taking the risk of doing that. Now, perp tokens then come into play here because you need to you need to use your staked perp um, to launch those private markets. Um, and what that allows you to do a is you're again backstopping those private markets. But what that means is you take uh, a larger cut of the fees. From those private markets. So, uh, as a as a perp holder, if you stake in kind of both public and private markets, you will then take a percentage of fees from the public markets as well as a percentage of the fees from the private markets. Um, and then uh, that, that's probably the main use case that we're seeing right now. Again, it's kind of um, we still need to fine tune and kind of tweak it before it's it's finalized. Um, the second piece is there's kind of a lot of uh, rewards programs, I guess, that we are coming up with. Um, in the future, uh, and a lot of this will require staked perp uh, in some way, shape, or form. Um, we'll still kind of probably have a tier that that uh, people who don't stake perp can still have access to. Um, but the idea really is you might have three, four, five kind of tiers of varying levels of staked perp, um, which then kind of impact uh, the rewards that you're able to access and so forth. Um, so how has any of this changed or been improved now with the release of Curie? With, I guess with Curie, we're one step closer to, to, to kind of getting there. Um, in, in V1, uh, there wasn't a, a very large kind of emphasis on building out the, the staking mechanisms and, and, and so forth of um, the perp token. And, and that was just because we had to focus really on uh, on launching kind of v2 and kind of uh, staying up to date with that so um, with the launch of v2 uh, we're able to kind of dedicate a little bit more time and kind of think through this a little bit better and spend a little bit more time on the research so just given that uh, whatever tokenomics kind of solidifies it's going to be uh, fairly lo- like obviously it can be changed with governance and whatnot but it's we want to set the the, the right groundwork 
so that it's kind of lasting at least uh, for the next kind of six, 12 months, let's say. Walk me through just Curie V2, right? Because that's a major release, a big update to the protocol. What are some of the things that have, you know, have been updated to the protocol? Um, looks like also a change on uh, where it's operating, which it's on optimism. Uh, you know, yeah, walk us through and, and give us an introduction to what that looks like and what that means for the future of Perpetual. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are, yeah, so I guess first off, um, we have moved from XDAI over to Optimism, as, as you mentioned. Um, we, and we've done that because we've, we care quite a lot about composability. So I think we have, the last time I counted, like maybe 10, 15 projects that are uh, directly integrating with us right now. There's probably another 10 in the pipeline. Um, and so being on kind of a, a layer two where people actually want to kind of build on um, is is kind of quite key for us. And, and we had the problem where, for whatever reason, I don't know why, people just didn't want to build on XDAI. Um, and so moving over to Optimism kind of really, really helps uh, with that composability piece. Um, and then from a protocol kind of perspective, there's three major categories, I would say, from a V2 uh, that we're looking at. So um, we've kind of staggered them into phases. So um, uh, the first phase, which is the one that we have deployed right now, is probably the biggest one, I would say. Uh, and that is moving from uh, a Uniswap kind of V2 model to a Uniswap V3 model. So um, that means we've directly integrated with UniV3. I would I would think of it more as like um, using UniV3 as kind of like our... Um, our accounting or our pricing engine, I guess. Um, but what that did is it, it changed, like on the surface, it looks quite simple, but we it's changed a, a whole bunch of parameters. So um, we now have LPs who can kind of provide liquidity. They can be kind of like market makers and whatnot. Um, and so the design space of what you can do uh, on this kind of AMM-based perpetual pro, uh, product um, has opened up drastically. And this is kind of why I think a lot of projects like the way we do it, because your your price is not determined by a formula that's been set by someone. Um, it's it's quite dynamic now. You can kind of do a lot more than, than you can before. So that's the first piece. Um, and that's the one that we've currently deployed to Optimism. The next two phases, uh, we're looking to kind of deploy in the next kind of one or two quarters. Um, and and the, the second piece around that is uh, trying to get to centralized exchange kind of um, from a functionality perspective. So we want to offer uh, multi-collateral types. Um, so being able to deposit ETH, for example, instead of just USDC and being able to trade against that. Um, and then cross-margining, which uh, we have actually um, implemented in, in, in this release. Uh, and then the final one is the one that I talked about, which, which we're particularly excited about, which is kind of private markets. And uh, yeah, I think I've already gone through it before, so don't need to go through it, uh, go through it again. Yeah. So... I always like to imagine that uh, our audience doesn't know what some of this uh, vocabulary means. So would you mind kind of giving us uh, maybe a brief 101 into some of the benefits of like multi-collateral and cross-margining as you described being uh, available in the future uh, on Curie? Yeah, yeah. So uh, cross-margin is already available. Um, and what it so, so there's two types. There's isolated margin and there's cross margin. So the best way to think about this is um, when you open up a position um, with any form of leverage, there is a liquidation mechanism, which means that um, 
if you bet too much, you will get you will get wrecked effectively, and 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 someone will come in and close your position and take a percentage of uh, of your position, um, and just that's just to ensure that kind of the system doesn't have any uh, bad debt as a, as a whole. Um, that liquidation kind of mechanism depends on the margin that you have. So you always have this uh, you have this concept of having to maintain a minimum amount of margin. Uh, for, for a position. Now, with isolated margin, what that means is that each position that you have, um, let's say you open an ETH position and a BTC position, they will both require um, specific amounts of margin for each one. And so when you open a position for, uh, let's say, your BTC one, we take, I don't know, 100 USDC as, as your margin. And when you open your ETH one, let's say again, uh, we take 100 USDC uh, as margin. What what's happened now is we've taken 200 USDC in total, um, and and they don't like uh, these two margins like they don't talk to each other. Um, whereas with cross margin, what we can do is uh, instead of depositing, I guess, collateral into into the positions themselves, you can imagine that you have a wallet that you would deposit into. So now all I would need to do, for example, is deposit 100 USDC into this wallet, and I could open the same kind of BTC and ETH positions. And so it's a lot more capital efficient because the margin requirements are kind of shared across all of my positions rather than with, uh, with some of them, uh, rather than them kind of being isolated. So that's, that's kind of the, the cross margining uh, element of it. And then I guess from a multi-collateral perspective, um, what, uh, we, we, I don't think we have a super solidified, we, we have an idea of what we're going to do, but, um, the the effective idea is is like imagine you have a compound within perp i guess so you would put in ethereum you could then borrow let's say 75% of that ethereum in usdc in a in a 0 dollar uh, sorry 0% uh loan and then you would trade uh whatever you wanted to trade uh against that so it opens up why why that's interesting is it opens up a lot of um different use cases for, for people. So uh, one really basic one is uh, Lemma, for example. Um, they are building kind of like a basis, uh, almost like a stable coin. So if you imagine that if you can put in one ETH uh, into PERP and you can exactly shoot one ETH, you effectively have kind of like a synthetic stable coin um, because your if ETH goes up, then your collateral value goes up your position value goes down and vice versa. So you all, you almost have this synthetic stable that now is not dependent on kind of circle holding USDC or, or, um, or, or hoping that Tether has your money. Um, and so it, it opens up this whole new uh, design space basically for people to kind of deposit uh, assets that they normally have, um, but they still want to kind of utilize it and, and want to trade it. So similar to, I guess, how people use Compound or Aave right now for leverage, but kind of this is, 10x of that. So walk me through the decision for launching, you know, uh, Curie V2 on uh, Optimism instead of, you know, like another, uh, you know, another solution like Arbitrum. Actually, like uh, when, when we designed Curie, we, uh, we always like uh, targeting at Arbitrum. Uh, because I think they are, I mean, like the ecosystem is strong and then we really like the, what they provide, I mean, they design. Uh, so we actually, I mean, like, 
build on top of Audi Chong, and then we launched a testnet tricking competition like uh, two or three weeks ago. Actually, I mean, and uh, it actually worked quite well until the last day. We have like some like um, like bandwidth issue with Audi Chong. We see the gas price actually spike a lot on the testnet. Uh, you know, at first we we thought that uh, you know you just like it's, it's a testnet, so the bandwidth is a cap. So. Uh, so we notified the team and then we, we asked them that, uh, I mean, like, uh, we kind of like, uh, we ha- happen the same on mainnet. And then, uh, they actually respond that, uh, the testnet and the mainnet actually are the same. So, which means that, uh, we might create some like a gas spike on the mainnet. I mean, like with the same like, uh, traffic. So, you know, we kind of like dig into it and then found that they have some, they have a, a, a cap on gas per second. So, which means that the, the layer two, so I think like all the layer two roll up system, they separate the gas into a layer one gas, layer two gas. So for Abishan, they have this like, uh, a cap like 80k per second. I mean, gas limit on the layer two gas. But, uh, we actually looking at our transaction. I mean, most of our transaction costs around like 500. K, I mean, because it's more complicated, it's a leverage platform. So we, we actually did a lot of calculation, talked to the team a lot, but, uh, they are not really comfortable, like raising that cap. So, so we kind of like, uh, have to make a decision again that uh, we need to like, uh, maybe like use other like platform. So we ends up going to Optimism. We talked to the Optimism team, like, um, also, like uh, several months ago, and uh, I think it's quite strong. Uh, but uh, they have this like issue that uh, it's not like fully compatible to the East client. So for the Soliki contract we built, we have to modify that. So it's actually a major block blocking thing that uh, we don't want to do. We want to it to be like hundred percent compatible to the mainnet. So so we. We, so we just like, um, um, so Optikinson is not an option at that time, but, uh, with their V2, they actually fix it. So it's like 100% compatible to the ETH client. So it actually, so we are like, like, uh, uh, porting our stuff on Optikinson. Of course, there are like details that, uh, we need to get more, but the, it only costs us like uh, two weeks. And then we launch on Optikinson. I mean, just like uh, two or three days ago, yeah. So it, it's just like a reason. I mean, like I think it, it actually it will be like um, I feel the same when we launched the V1 on Sky. I mean, just like uh, this platform are so new. Now lots of people like you know. Uh, of course, they are like projects are building on top of it, but uh, they are like limits that uh, not yet test out yet. So you know, we kind of like just need to. You know, test it and then, um, you know, kind of like make a decision on that, even though there are not lots of people like working on that platform yet. Right. But it probably made it easier, um, the fact that Uniswap is there too, right? Because I think I heard earlier there's a dependency to Uniswap. So maybe that just made it a bit, bit easier as well. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. We need to build on top of Uniswap. So that's why we only consider Optifon and Optifon. And also, uh, we are now real. I mean, like, once like Optimum, they have this like new update Nitron probably like in Q1 
next year, we will definitely reconsider that going back to Arbitron once they give that uh, cap, I mean, gas limit cap. Walk me through this here, right? Because, I mean, the topic of the discussion is, you know, building DeFi on layer two solutions. So would you say that there is a consideration of running Curie on, you know, on, on Optimism and Arbitrum at the same time and Unison? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's just that pros and cons. I'm running on, on more chains, like uh, we can reach more users. But uh, at the same time, the liquidity will be fragmented. So, uh, I mean, like it's just like a, a choice to us. Um, yeah. So we also like consider other chains, maybe like Polygon, maybe others. But, uh, I mean, like I'm personally, uh, kind of like ETH maximalist. So I just want to build everything on top of it. So that's just myself. But, uh, you know, like Uniswap also, I consider like the, you know, like porting to Polygon. So once I have that, we will definitely take a look. And then I think on Polygon, there is still like a fee benefit. Like I said before, the lower the fee is, I mean, the more trading we have, we can have. So definitely also interesting in that as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, right, it's a matter of, making sure that the protocol is accessible to the users that want to use it. So following them to where they're at and building it um, and giving them that ability is, I guess, uh, part of the focus of where you decide to launch and that strategy. Um, so you wrote on you, one of your latest blog posts uh, announcing Curie that one of the most exciting aspects of Curie is its high degree of composability. Talk to me a little bit about that composability. Uh, what does that mean to Perpetual Protocol? And uh, what are some of those ways that the protocol itself is composable and being used by other projects or using or integrating with other projects, I should say? Yeah, um, I, I think like to, to kind of frame the outlook of, of what we see, at least, like we believe very, very heavily in composability. And I think down the line, like, let's say, I mean, it's impossible to kind of forecast anything past like three months right now, but like, assume like down the line, um, we actually believe that a large majority of the trading volume, um, will come from partner projects that are built on top of perp and the end user won't even know that they're trading on top of perp. So we, we, we believe quite heavily in that. And which is, which is kind of why we've taken a very different approach to, I guess, most other projects in the space um, and very, very heavily pursued kind of partners uh, to build on top of PERP. And what, what does that kind of mean and what does that kind of look like? I think if you look at the design decisions that we've made, for example, um, the simple fact that we are built on top of Uniswap B3, that was quite a deliberate choice. What that now means is that kind of all of the Uni V3 kind of LP uh, strategy providers that are currently building on top of V3 because they're building on top of, uh, if they port it over to PERP, they're building on exactly the same kind of um, infrastructure, I guess, and, and the same kind of concepts. We've basically got um, all of the major ones that are integrating and, and, and seeing how they can port their strategy over and add leverage on top. So that's kind of like a very simple use case of why we kind of made the, the decision that we've, that we've done to kind of use Uniswap V3. And because... I guess we're very big fans of that. We have been funding, I guess, a lot of grants um, to kind of help either from like a research perspective or kind of building on top of um, PERP. And then hopefully uh, 
if if it kind of works on perp, you can imagine it also works on kind of UniV3. So we're trying to kind of help build the ecosystem uh, in that sense. The second point, I guess, is that um, we are fully on chain, so we don't have any uh, element of our system, I guess, which is centralized. Um, and what that means is that partners can integrate with us in a completely permissionless way. Um, so we've had many partners come to us. We've tried to kind of integrate um, with other systems. And because because there are components of it that are centralized, it's very hard for them to kind of permissionlessly integrate and then kind of build on top of. Um, and then the last piece, I guess, is, is really around optimism. So um, just by being on the fact that we're kind of on a chain where everyone wants to be, um, we're seeing a we're seeing a lot less pushback in terms of uh, as opposed to like when we were reaching out to people in, with with XI in the first place um, to do that. Uh, and and I guess the only other thing I would say is probably um, from an AMM perspective, um, it makes it quite easy to kind of integrate um, with us. Uh, you don't need to kind of worry so much about kind of trying to connect in with, with kind of like an order book and a matching engine. Uh, and, and so it's a lot simpler in that regard. Great, thank you. Um- so one of the things that you said really early on in the discussion, I think that was actually Yenwen who mentioned it in terms of the evolution of DeFi from the moment that um, Perpetual Protocol was first being uh, developed through today, where it's at at Optimism, a lot has changed, right? I mean, the, the landscape is very different, not just in DeFi, but overall in Web3, I think. So what do you think if you could make a wild guess. I know you can't predict what's going to happen in the future. How do you think that DeFi is going to continue to evolve in the future? And just generally, what is DeFi's role going to be in Web3? That's a great question. So, um, okay, in general, I think DeFi is only like, uh, it's only like uh, three or four years. And then it actually be more like a popular, only like a recent, like a year or two. Actually, I think it's just like uh, maybe one uh, a half year. I mean, scoff on like compound issue with their token and then the whole DeFi summer, right? So it's like, it's just like a, a year and a half before. So I do feel that uh, we have lots of things that uh, we can build. I think on the spot market side, I think we have accomplished lots of things. And, uh, but on the derivative side, I mean, uh, of course, like we, we are doing, I think we are doing well. But uh, compared to like central change, there are still a long way to go. UIGS is doing well, uh, but also like, compared to like central change, I mean, there are still like a lot of like uh, thing that we can do. So on the derivative side, I think that's definitely like one area that we can do much better. And then there are lots of growth in this area. And the second thing is that uh, I mentioned that uh, the gas, the, the, the gas fee. So I mean, because everything. I mean, on crypto is so popular right now, so gas fee is so high. I mean, like, there are lots of like, competition from like Layer One chain. Uh, so they offer like like less gas fee, but uh, I do feel that the user haven't moved out from ETH yet. Lots of users stay in the ETH ecosystem scale. So with like Layer Two, I I mean like and also like zk rollup in the future or like other things, I do feel that. Um, Lower fees definitely will increase the whole trading volume and then adoption for the for the DeFi project that we see right now. So I think that's the second area that uh, once everyone moves to layer two and then layer two can eat, can further cut down their costs, I do feel that we can have much more like um, 
either like volume, either like training, either like user, and also like a strategy that you can build on top of DeFi. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Nick, did you want to add anything to that in terms of like what you think uh, the future holds for DeFi and how Perpetual Protocol will, you know, have a place in that as well? There's a, yeah, there's a, I mean, maybe this is me being optimistic, but I'd love to see in the future, at least, like, if we look at the users, there's always going to be two groups of users, I feel, right? Like, there's there's going to be the users who us within the ecosystem or, or people who uh, may not have access to kind of like a like a like a solid banking system um, who wants to hold their keys but I, I also think that there's always going to be a large group of people that are are very happy with a bank custodying their assets because they don't want to they don't want to um, know how it works so like if I try to convince my grandparents for example like this there's no chance that, that they're going to uh, download metamask and try to use it and whatnot so I, I almost see that in the future we we will probably have kind of these institutions and this kind of I guess CDFI style products that cater to this kind of uh, audience that will then plug into DeFi um, in in the back end, and that's kind of where I see the the power of what we've built. Right, like we are positioning ourselves exactly for that kind of future where a we will still cater towards kind of um, for people who kind of want to own their keys, and and, and obviously we're not going to cut anyone out there, but we're also getting ready to be the infrastructure layer for these kind of CFI products that then want to tap into DeFi and want to provide a better service to their customers through this kind of decentralized infrastructure. So that's kind of what I see in the in the very, very long term. Um, how long? I have no idea. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Perpetual Protocol, go to perp.com. That's P-E-R-P.com. And on Twitter at perpprotocol. Thanks for listening to Crypto Sapiens. Please give us a follow, like, and a five-star review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next discussion.